Hi, everybody. Welcome to On My Last Neuron with Dr. Karis Dillon. Uh, my name is Mike Dillon, and I am Karis's husband. And not only am I lucky enough to be the host of this podcast, but I am also Karis's gluten-free chef <laughs> and Joe's pizza bitch. I'll totally admit I don't like to cook. But I'll do dishes, definitely. Yes, she does more than her fair share of the work around the house. So we we do a little bit of cooking, doesn't uh, I think that comes more from my obsessive need for things to be clean than anything Which is else. another topic for another <laughs> That was a good call. I know, I know. Um, in today's episode, uh, we're going to start talking a little bit about um, autism spectrum disorder. Um, and specifically, uh, we're going to... Uh, Listen to uh, an interview, I guess, that uh, that Karis was able to do with our daughter, Sydney. You were there, too. Oh, yeah, I guess I was there, too, <laughs> wasn't I? Um, anyway, uh, Sydney is our oldest daughter, and uh, she is... Our um, only daughter. Our only daughter. Thanks for the corrections here. <laughs> um, she's our oldest and only daughter, yes. and uh, she is um, on the spectrum. And it's, uh, it's interesting to talk about um, females who have... Definitely. Um, been diagnosed or that are on the spectrum. And so I think that's going to be an interesting twist on, on this topic because there's a, you know, go ahead. Why don't you? Well, it was really enlightening. We, we both sat there and, you know, conducted the interview and it was enlightening for both of us. Yeah, definitely. So uh, maybe before we get to the interview, though, uh, just for everybody's sake, and I know even for my sake, being somebody who's on the spectrum myself, uh, sometimes understanding exactly what autism is or what that word means or, you know, what is sure. autism spectrum disorder, how does it fit with Asperger's and all these terms that people kind of throw out there. Can you, you give bet. us some ideas? To- so we're not quite sure where autism comes from. We believe that there are genetic components to some of it and that it might originate during the second trimester of pregnancy. But If I had to guess, I do believe that autism, that there's different types of autism. We're not sure why it all happens or takes place quite yet, but I do think there's going to be different types of autism that end up coming up. There are a host of symptoms that come with autism. Now, in the past, you may have heard Asperger's disorder. I still use Asperger because I haven't gotten over not using it to describe high-functioning autism, but we now call it all autism spectrum disorder because there's a wide range of signs and symptoms that somebody has who has autism. I find it very unique that Sydney, during her interview, talked about uh, the embracing of that title, being autistic. Um, And I'll leave that kind of in her interview because I think it's very powerful the way that she says that. So we tend to think of autism as a developmental disorder, but information is constantly changing with it. Some of the signs and symptoms include repetitive behavior, social skills, speech issues. Um, Sometimes the individual can become nonverbal. Stimming can also be a sign or symptom of that. So that kind of sums that up. So you mentioned like some of the different symptoms of, of autism. Um, I'm kind of wondering, you know, how, how do those symptoms kind of vary from person to person, especially since we're talking about autism spectrum disorder? What does that really mean, you know, in terms of... They vary extremely widely. I mean, you can have an individual that is very severe, is nonverbal, rocks to an extreme to kind of calm oneself or calm one's mind using stimming, which is like a repetitive 
behavior. Individuals with severe autism can even hurt themselves, bite down on fingers or hands, or they can um, hurt their head by pushing against a wall or even hitting a wall. There are some individuals with autism that struggle with cognitive deficiency, and they don't really understand the link between the two of those. That tends to happen in about 40 to 50% of more severe individuals. Um, we don't, of course, see that a lot of times with a high-functioning individual with autism. This is one of the reasons why they decided to use autism spectrum disorder, because I think individuals who have autism or had autism and were upset by being put into the same category as you know different facets of that. There's still movements right now where people are wanting different things. And I think the autism community has been great about getting together, helping each other, especially high-functioning individuals with autism, to help understand that this is not a unique, you're alone behavior. This is things and ways that you cope with the neurotypical world and what neurotypical means is people that don't have autism. It doesn't mean they can't have other things, but it's just meaning they do not have autism. One thing I want to add too is there's a myth out there that people with autism cannot feel, and that is farthest from the truth. Individuals with autism um, can feel feelings the same way as a neurotypical what is difficult for them is expressing those feelings. And some individuals will use movie lines to express that. Sometimes the stimming is used to kind of communicate. It all depends upon the severity of the person. But I would say that that question of how do you feel today or how are you feeling probably isn't the easiest question for somebody with autism to answer. If you provide them with choices, that may be much easier all right. Well, how about on that note, why don't we uh, flip over and uh, take a listen to your interview with uh, Sydney? Sounds great. All right. So today uh, we've got Sydney and Everett here in the studio with us to uh, do our, our interview this week. And this week, what are we going to be talking about, Karis? We're going to be talking about female autism. There isn't a lot of information about female autism. And I have the experience of knowing that because I've tried to look it up even 10 years ago when you were a younger woman, just trying to find out, does my daughter have this? So I thought this would be a great episode. How are you feeling about us interviewing you, Sydney? I mean, I'm excited because I think I've come to a lot of like realizations in the past couple of years, like actually coming to an understanding that I have it and what that means for me in my adult life. So I think it's cool to talk about. I'm excited about it because every time I talk to you, it's like you've gone steps more. I got to say, as much as I loved being a parent, this is the best time for me. It's having my adult children in my life. It's exciting and to hear about what you're doing, but also the reflection of your life because I learn a lot from you living your life. Yeah, I think um, a lot of I've been going back a lot and processing just my whole childhood and like mm -hmm. I think we're coming to like realizations of all the things that we went through like what as caused a, that as, you a know, as, parent, or, as parents and like 
Absolutely. I think one of the things your dad and I, when we started raising children, we didn't have this understanding that we were going to be these perfect parents. Every day it was like, we're going to just try our best and we are going to screw up. And we knew at some point on the line that our kids would all come to us and say, wow, you didn't do this so great. And we agreed to listen and we agreed to like move forward from that. So I've seen it on the other side where the child is like, I'm fine. Don't try to create a problem within me. But it feels like I'm just so glad that we finally have begun to kind of understood um, some of the things that us as a family were going through trying to raise a daughter with autism and not know it at first. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some background in that? I mean, did you, when did you know something was different? I think um, as a young child, I always knew something was off. I never, like, I thought I was just weird. (laughs) Um, You know, I did not, I had such a hard time making friends. I was uh, bullied a lot every time I tried to talk to other kids. And, like, I thought maybe I was just weird and I had weird interests and nobody was interested in those things. And that's why I didn't have friends. But... Um, to put a little background in there, um, Cindy was a very intelligent young lady. She was speaking, um, probably 10 words, 10 to 20 words at one. And she was reading by the time she was two and a half. And I'm not talking easy worded books. We're talking, you know, just basic children's books. And by the time she was four, she was an avid reader So we knew that we had this very intelligent young lady. We did not expect, though, to see, like, issues in school. And Sydney came back from kindergarten and informed us after seven days she was done and that she was moving on to another grade. So, you know, that's something I've wondered a lot about, Sid. We skipped you from all of kindergarten being done to first grade. Would you go back and do that differently? I don't think so, knowing where I am now. Like, um, I mean, I'm almost 21, and I am almost complete, have almost completed my um, bachelor's degree, and, like, I'm moving forward, and it feels great where I am now. I think that had a lot of trials to it when I was a kid, having to deal with um, just other students, and, like, I was almost two years younger than everybody. I was born in the summer, so that made me even younger than uh, just a person that skipped a grade. So it was uh, hard to find people to get along with. I think there was a lot of um, immaturity there Mm -hmm. because, like, yeah, I was intelligent and mature in that way, but at the same time, like, I was into... stuff that kids younger than me were interested in like I was still watching like Dora the Explorer in first grade and kids made fun of me for that because I was like they were too old for it and stuff like that so I think there was a disconnect okay versus I don't think they knew so do you think it would have been better to just keep you at your grade level with your age I mean, I wouldn't go back and change it. Okay. I, I'm happy with how it turned out. I mean, it just, I think I would have struggled nevertheless. With so you think grade. there would have been other issues that came up in a different way? Yeah, because I always struggled socially. I mean, like, I just, you know, thinking back on it, I probably wasn't 
the person I actually came across as to these other kids. Like, I thought I was this, you know, I was starting conversations and all that. And, like, I don't think I even talked much at all in school. Which is so crazy because it's, like, when people would come over to the house, you'd talk their ear off. But it was always an adult that Mm -hmm. you were talking to. The house was a safe space where I could just be myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, adults found me to be almost amusing in a way, like, because I was so intelligent. They, yes. were, they were kind of infatuated with that. Yes. Like, how is this <laughs> child no. saying all these big words? And right. So I think I enjoyed that. Well, and the funny thing was, you were not, like, little clones of Dad and I. You were truly your own person. You know, you had your own interests, and we had to definitely find our way through those and find a way to like click and connect with you. I think one of the challenges with um, like the school aspect though, too, is I think there's probably two factors playing into it. You know, I think the autism piece is one part of it, but I think the age part is another factor that probably had an impact on, you know, because I, I can speak from experience as somebody who was, I wasn't skipped a grade, but I was one of the younger people in my classroom, you know, and so... Aren't you four when you went in? Yeah, I mean, I turned five during the year, okay. but I mean, I was younger than most people in my class, and, you know, I think just being a late bloomer and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it has an impact on you socially and, like, sports and athletics and you know i mean not that you were into sports or anything like that but i mean but you know even like i think in my driver's license until i was a junior there's the autism piece and i think the age piece kind of impacts it as well and it's maybe kind of hard to parse those things out a little bit well let's go back and talk about the younger stages first and kind of work chronologically up just because i think if anything maybe there's people out there that can relate to the story and maybe don't even know if, that they have a daughter with autism. So I want to just kind of maybe share our story and your story, mostly your story of what you remember. Um, so we were just talking for a second in the break there about how Sydney loved. You had like a baby rocker? Yeah. Me. Like a swing. Mm-hmm. A baby swing. And she loved it. She would be in that sucker for hours. And she coming out and that swing was whipping back and forth. And those were one of the only times I saw a smile on your face. It's like when you were kind of whipping back and forth, I thought, is this going to hurt her? And you'd be like, no, she's fine. Leave her. Don't touch her. <laughs> I'd be like, okay. So my question that I want to ask is when you were a kid, do you remember how much repetition you loved? And do you have any idea like, what that was now. I mean, you would listen to a book a hundred times. I'm not kidding you. A hundred times if we uh, if we would read it to you a hundred times. Do you have any clue what that repetition was for you? I think it's a um, being finding comfort in something that you know. I like to listen to the same songs that I already know, like consistently, and that's soothing because I'm familiar with it. So I think reading that book over and over, I almost had it memorized at that point, and it'd be like, oh, I know what's on the next page, and it was soothing, and... Yeah, there were times where you would read the book to us, and then we had to try to distinguish, could she read the book, or did she just memorize it? We all thought she just memorized it, and then we would point out individual words, and you had them down. So that's why the reading took off so quickly. 
your math took off extremely quickly too. We were shocked by that. Um, you were adding and subtracting double digits, probably at four. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the issue when you got into kindergarten because they they were starting with num- like speaking the numbers and identifying them. And you are already double digit math and subtraction. Mm-hmm. So I was bored. <laughs> yeah. It, does that come up a lot for you now? Are you bored a lot? Not as much now because like a lot of the... Um, a lot of the stuff I'm studying is stuff I'm not familiar with and I'm learning new things. And that's, uh, so I think now like in college, because I'm studying something very specific and it's new for me, I don't get bored with it because it's all new information. That's exciting. So yeah, I don't think I get bored as I used to. So if you could go back and this is going to be a really like comp, maybe complicated question. If you could create a school that would have worked to its top potential for you, what might that look like? I think it's just very individualized, like, it focused on where I'm at. Um, I mean, you know, you follow, like, if you pick up something fast, yeah. you don't want to sit and study it for the next week, but you have to do that because you're with all these other students. So, like, I think smaller classrooms would have made a difference. Probably um, the European model was six to ten students in a class yeah probably do you think that would have changed relationships with the kids in class i think so if i was mostly around kids who were kind of on that same level essentially with me like i think it would have at least in the on the educational side it would have been fine i don't think I think I would have still struggled socially no matter what. That was just something I had to learn. Now, I think I've heard you talk about the difference between middle school and high school. What was middle school like for you? Um, Middle school was fine. Like, it was... I was starting to get to this point of, like, realizing that I could, like, have friendships and all that. And I think I got to the point when um, switching over to high school, like, those friends I had in middle school, they were moving on, and they didn't have as much time for me. So, like, socially, I started getting really frustrated because I would blame it on myself. Like, So, did, did the middle school have activities at that point? Like, did you have extracurricular in middle school? Yeah, I participated in swimming. And I was in a on a math team and in an art club. That was my favorite place to be was art club. There were a lot of students that were weird like me. We liked had weird interests and we got along over those things and Yeah, the portion that you were in swimming from a home basis seemed to be the best middle school years for you or middle school months. Do you think part of your friends kind of moving and shifting had to do with their extracurricular activities? Um no, I think a lot of it was on my end, to be honest. Um, I was very I was very interested in specific things, and I would not ever shut up about them. So, like, people kind of got, like, <laughs> sick of it. <laughs> like, they just didn't want to hear about the same things anymore. Do you remember what any of those things were? I was very interested in anime at the time and art and all that. And um, at least the group of friends I was with, they were very over it. I remember I lost a friend just because I had, I talked about 
a certain show I like too much. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So I bet a lot of people that are listening are going to say, she doesn't sound autistic to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the one that drives me the craziest. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why people say stuff like that, because it's like, what is an autistic person supposed to sound like? I wonder if, uh, when it comes to autism, one of the issues, you know, with that type of question is, I think, do you feel like it's still the perception of people when they think of autism to think of the person who's, like, profoundly autistic in terms of, you know, like, nonverbal or, you know, having tics or, you know, the things that you know, the whole Rain Man stereotype kind of thing. I mean, do you think that maybe has an impact on why, you know, people look at someone who's very high-functioning autistic and assumes, like, well, no, they're not, or, you know, or have, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think think it has to do with the fact that, first of all, a big chunk of people don't even know what autism is. True. Like... I had someone at my workplace say, ask me what it was. And I was like, you have no idea at all. Like people don't even have an idea. And if they do have a perception, it's like Rain Man or, um, there was a new movie that came out recently that depicted only the extremes of symptoms that people with like, um, more severe autism have. Do you remember at all what the movie is? It, Sia made the movie. Okay. Sia, I think it's we'll called Music. Out. Oh, okay. Music. Yeah. So people definitely saw the movie and then began to define it maybe differently than what it really is. Well, they're seeing this uh, kid that wears headphones, headphones all day and doesn't speak and screams and has a tantrum. Mm. So, like... I don't think people actually have a real idea of what autism is. Oh, I'm sure they don't. As a whole. I mean, honestly, I didn't know about it till I got into psychology. And then, I mean, we didn't even know it with Mike. We just thought, here's a shy person who can't talk about his feelings very well. Come to find out later once we have a child. I mean, unfortunately, Sydney... Well, fortunately, Sydney came before Gabe, but unfortunately, we didn't figure out that Sydney had it until Gabe, who was, I would say, more severe, um, had autism. And that was the link that all of us in the family needed. But we lost so many years because Sid is five years ahead of Gabe. Well, I don't even think it clicked for a very long time past that, like... Because it was kind of this, like, maybe ability to mask as a female and, like, okay, maybe it could be, but maybe not. So, had we have had the resources like TikTok and known that you had autism, would that have helped you through middle school, high school? I think so. I mean, like, there'd be a little bit more of an explanation for why I struggled in the ways I did. And, um, also I think I could have been more authentically myself because I, I got to a point where I just kind of had to hide everything like, uh, because the stuff I did was weird. So I didn't want to be that person at school and all that. Like I had to try and fit in somehow. So what that looked like from a home perspective was you went to your room a lot and spent a lot of time in your room. 
Yeah, I think one of the challenges with with you know looking back on it with raising a daughter and a son, even with uh, high functioning autism, is as you go through kind of each stage of life, it makes it it can be hard to decipher of you know is this autistic behavior or is this age behavior? Is right. this autistic behavior or is this just being a teenager and dealing with hormones? You know, you know what I mean. Each stage kind of has these other things that kind of you know, confuse the issue a little bit that make it hard to decipher, you know, where's that coming, you know what I mean? And it's, it's sometimes it's almost like just having, you know, being able to look back on it, you can kind of now see with more clarity, you know, what those things were, whereas when you're in the middle of it, you know, earlier. And again, I think one of the challenges too, and I know one of the struggles I had with it, with, you know, being diagnosed on the spectrum was that initial, like, acceptance of that because there was kind of this feeling like, okay, if I if I'm autistic, what's wrong with me? You know, that must mean there's some sort of problem with me, you know, and I think getting over that hump, you know, individually and and being able to say, okay, this isn't a problem, this is a gift, or, you know, this isn't a character flaw, this is just part of who I am, and I need to figure out how best to express it, you know. And Did you struggle with that? See, I think I have kind of the exact opposite reaction with it, whereas, like, for me, I you felt something was wrong from the beginning, and I didn't have a reason for it, and I thought I just couldn't change myself and make myself. I was obsessed with having friends and being popular, and I could never get there, and something was wrong with me because of that, and um, when, it finally, when I finally hit that clarity point, like, where I'm like, okay, yeah, I probably have this, it was like everything's starting to fall in place. It's making sense for me. And I think it's helping me because I can work with that diagnosis. And and I think that's the difference between men versus women in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of our women right now are not being properly diagnosed and the, the symptoms are different. And I cannot, you know, I, the little bit of kind of commonality that I think I can pull with you is 32 years of not having celiac disease diagnosed in me and I was throwing up from the disease and them telling me we've done all the studies we've looked at every test out there and we think it's mental we think that you're throwing up on purpose and that's what the Mayo Clinic told me come to find out by a fluke they found celiac disease so you do feel better because you feel like you have control again mm-hmm. You have something to work with. Absolutely. You can go up from there. How do you, where do you go from there? Where do you step forward? Where do you look for references and how to go next into the world? Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of my um, processing almost happened before the um, diagnosis. Um, like, I had, for me, socially... I had to fail over and over and over again, and I learned from that how to communicate. So it kind of is, it's kind of weird because I get that comment sometimes, like, oh, you don't sound like you have autism. It's like, in my experience, I just had to push and push and push and learn how to handle that beforehand. And then my hearing advocate for myself. 
I mean, it kind of seems like you're doing that now. And I mean, I found, um, my own coping, coping mechanisms at the time and like, um, ones that were more subtle than someone that, uh, is uh, like socially acceptable ways of coping. Um, so you even feel pressure to have coping mechanisms that everybody else finds acceptable? I did. And, but now I'm getting to the point after diagnosis being like, okay, this isn't my fault. Mm-hmm. This isn't my problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is a how other people perceive it Absolutely. and how we're being treated based on what we have because there are so many ways I could cope but I'm embarrassed by it because that's how society has deemed can, symptoms. Can you go back and cope in that by yourself privately or does that take a social I mean I'm not going to ask you what those things are unless you're comfortable talking about them. I'm very open with Okay. Well, you know, what are some of those coping mechanisms that society isn't always fine with? Um, a lot of, like, stimming, for example. Stimming is to stimulate your brain. You, like, either move or you make noises, stuff like that, um, repeatedly to, like, um, it's, it's, it just, it's soothing. So, like, sitting and rocking in public, you look, people look at you like you're crazy, Mm -hmm. like, Making noises, um, ticking, that kind of stuff. Um, it just doesn't look normal. So people are going to look at you mm-hmm. and they're going to make judgments on you. So like, it's almost embarrassing to like, you have to repress that. Like you, you know, if you want to rock back and forth in public, there's, you're either going to be looked at and you have to deal with that or you can just that push it down. That sounds like tick disorder and bridging on... Um, Tourette's syndrome. I mean, in that disorder, they talk about the repression of tics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as far as I know, at least from watching like TikToks and stuff, and I don't know where this is at the medical side of things yet, but it's it's very common for people with autism to have some tics. It's not quite to the level of Tourette's. Um, and it's also an ADHD thing too, where you have a little bit of a tic type of thing, especially when your emotions are high in any way. Here's the thing that just kind of flips my brain a little bit. It's, you know, with Tourette's, it's not perfect, but they know it's a neurological disorder. And so they try different medications that help to repress the tics. Makes me wonder if that would help somebody with autism unless tick disorder or if that goes along with it is, I mean, we don't know. That's the hard part about all of this is everything that you're talking about right now in 10 years will probably change because of science and technology. It may be just a lowering of some type of neurotransmitter and then But I don't, you know, from a neurotypical point of view, and Everett, I'd love you to chime in here. Um, I don't know that I could handle my children or my husband suddenly being cured. I I don't even like that word. They always talk about autism like, oh, we're going to find a way to get through this. And it's like, I didn't marry this person thinking they're not damaged. They're not, I mean, yeah. 
I mean, to look at it that way is kind of like a failure of education. Yes. Really. I mean, and don't you don't you feel like our hospital system and sometimes our psychological system looks at it that way, and that's upsetting to me. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know where that problem begins there. If it's the medical professionals there. No, I hear, <laughs> I, I hear you, and I think you know the whole idea with this podcast is just to kind of put some of that, put the other side in there. That's what I think is most neat about you, Sydney, is like. I'm a woman with autism, and this is what this looks like from my point of view. That doesn't mean we all look mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. What I want to know, and I'm, what I bet a lot of listeners are wondering is, what do, what are the differences between somebody with, that's male with autism versus female? And I can go through some of those symptoms of male autism, but I think you already probably know a lot of them. That would actually help, because okay. like, I can kind of compare point by point. So, stimming, obviously, yes. is a symptom. Um, repetition is a symptom. Yes. Now, I don't see a lot of the repetition now. Am I missing something? Oh, yeah. Okay. I am very patterned in everything I do. Um, in my routine every day, like, even if it's I'm doing different things that day, like, there's still a routine to it. Do you get upset? Now, I know you don't have tantrums, like, as a child where... I know you still get upset by things, but I think that has shifted in a, in its own way where if you get off or you're pushed out of that routine, how does that feel? Um, I get very frustrated. I think um, it used to kind of surface as um, just crying and being upset in that way. I think now I get, it's like a little bit of anger, okay. but I kind of go, okay. I'm not going to (laughs) die, but, you know, if I fall out of my pattern, like, we can bring it back to that, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you kind of have to, like, logic your way out of it as an adult, because not everything's going to go your way. That was tough for you as a child. I mean, do you know that that was tough for you to switch up a routine as a child? Um, I mean, not as tough as Gabe, to be really honest with you. Yeah. But you showed your frustration in different ways than Gabe. Gabe has this very persistent, he doesn't let it go, whereas you would go more meltdown. You know, I'm a working adult. I have to be independent with things, so I have to have a way to just shut it down. Like, I I probably still could have meltdowns if I didn't, like... I get to points where I just want to bawl my eyes out because and, and I'm upset and angry over something that's probably pretty small. But so you, I kind of have to sit back and go, all right, I'm at work. I need to just stop. Take. I usually just like I'll walk out for a second, go get a drink of water, come back in. Everything's okay. You can start your pattern up again. So do you find that when you're even talking about it that it kind of brings up I noticed that with you, if we're talking about autism or your autism, that brings up stuff for you. Yes. Is it because, can you tell me what, I don't want to put, when you're asking questions, I don't want to put something into somebody's head, so I want to leave it more open. Why do you think that is? Like, I don't know. I think for me, being someone late diagnosed, there was a lot of, um, trauma with Mm -hmm. it like 
I know you guys have been talking a lot about that on the podcast, and I'm, like, yeah. realizing how much, like, just me being myself with autism and having certain symptoms and that being reacted to in a certain way, I've, you know, that was just me being authentic, and a lot of times that got shut down. And, um, I don't know, there's still a lot of stuff I have to work through with it. Like, I mean, I'm pretty newly discovering a lot of this stuff and it's bringing up a lot of memories where it's like, if I was diagnosed earlier or something, would this have been different? Did I miss out on something because I was dealing with this? I mean, there was a point in my childhood, early high school, where I was so angry and I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me and I couldn't accept myself and you know kids were treating me a certain way like they weren't I wasn't being accepted at school and like I just had no clue so I'm just sitting here like trying to figure out what is wrong with me with no explanation and that that was really painful for me as a kid because all I wanted was friends so like thank god you had the perseverance to keep pushing and to keep searching because you know i i know one of my fears is losing my children like to something mental health related i don't know why i've always had that fear and i've always been hypersensitive with three of my kids with that and watching you in pain and not being able to help that was tough but that's not yours, of course. Mm-hmm. But it's it just makes me so much more aware of how much of a survivor you are. I know you've thought about me in that respect, but I really hope that you embrace that title too in a different mm-hmm. way. Yeah, I think I've you know as much as um, I ha- I don't know I have a lot of mixed emotions in general. But- you know, I'm still working through it. I'm going to start therapy soon. Like, I'm going to have to start working through that trauma that's there. But also, like, you know, I'm sitting here where I'm at right now. I'm holding a job and I'm going to school. And I had no perception as a young high schooler that I would be even alive at this point. That's how we worried about that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I got to a point where I was so hopeless and finding myself that, like, I didn't know if it was going to, if I was going to be okay the next day. And this is something I really hope somebody out there hears because we were searching for help and we did get help and we did get therapy at the time. And because they didn't, I think because they didn't correctly diagnose this, um, we continue to struggle with it. We not only right now need help with diagnosing females with this, but we need help with possible therapies to help all age women that have autism. Yeah, there's not really a lot out there, especially because it's so hard to diagnose women. I'm sure we'll figure out a way to make it easier in the future, but it's just not looked into. There's not enough people looking into it. One of the things that I think you've expressed to me that I know has got to be a symptom of women versus men you guys mask so much better than males do with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain that to me? I think that comes from, masking comes from a root of 
trying to fit in. And I think women in general, correct me if I'm wrong, have more, they care a lot more about what other people think of them. Um, and that's important to them a little more often than men. Absolutely. So I think we have, we have a language, I think, don't you? Yes. And that's something I should have picked up on with you. Because I'd say, look at that woman. She's conveying this. And you would just look at me like, what? Yeah. I mean, there was a certain level of... Um, like, with masking, you're sitting and educating yourself by watching other people communicate and then mimicking it. So, I mean, that's I think that's where a lot of my communication comes from now, is I'm mimicking what I learned from other people. Um, and... So you're learning to mimic this and you're becoming more like neurotypical to the outside eye because you're just playing this character in this part, which ultimately is really exhausting. I think something to look for with uh, girls with autism is like when they find their safe space, that's usually when that mask comes off and they're a different person. So I hear from that we need to make sure our autistic females have a safe space that they feel comfortable and that's maybe mm -hmm. less people. Maybe that's not everybody, but I would think most people. Yeah, I mean, a lot of... Um, I mean, I think that's something to look for when... Uh, just, like, if you have a child that you're not sure about, that's something to look for. Are they a different person, depending on where they... Especially females, because they're they're masking for the environment they're going to be in. So, when I went to school, I tried to fit in and be just another one of the girls. Like, and when I, um, you know, went to family functions, you play that character for your family. Mm -hmm. And then, um, when you go home and you're in that safe space and you're exhausted from masking all day and pretending to be these people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily, like, not you authentically, but right. it sometimes feels like you're playing a character. It's like a social self, but it seems yeah. like when I've heard you talk about that and Mike talk about that, it's way more exhausting to you. Yes. You come home, and that kind of just shuts down. Like, you take off that mask, and you... You have to just lay down because you're drained and, you know, there's not a lot you can do past that point. Like, it's hard to keep that social self up all day. So, yeah. have you struggled with people that you've moved in with that they have to learn who that real taking off the mask is? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of, like, uh, questioning of it. Like, um, you know, you just have to get used to who that person is under the mask because if these people get to know you outside of your safe space like I met some of my roommates at work and um so they know my work persona and that customer service persona and all that and you get home and it's a completely different person like yeah it's still you but um you know that comes with the stimming and the um needing to shut down like my roommates had to learn that when I'm home, a lot of days, I just have to go to my room and recharge. How long does recharging take? Let's say an eight-hour workday, nine-hour workday. How long do you need to be in recharge mode? Is it depending? Is it dependent upon what happened at work? Yeah. I think the more social you had, I had to be at work, the more I needed time. Okay. But, like, 
sometimes it can be an hour. Sometimes, like, when I get home after work, I need to be in bed all the rest of the night. Like, okay. So it just kind of depends on how I felt. And, like, can we contrast that with a neurotypical? Yeah. <laughs> so you get home from an eight, nine-hour day. Mm-hmm. How much do you need to break off? I mean, for me, um, when I'm off work, that's my time to do the stuff I want to do, um, play video games, that kind of stuff. There's no real decompression, I would say. Okay. Um, because I would even say for myself, mm-hmm. I go to friends or I go, yeah. Like, yeah, I go to the social world. And mm-hmm. you're, what I'm hearing you say is, that is not going to help me. I need alone time. Mm-hmm. Either being alone or being with people you're super comfortable with that okay. you can kind of um, just chill. Does Everett know you 100% mask is off? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Can you read her pretty well when she's in decompression mode? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You can... I can always kind of tell if something's going on. Yeah. Um, but... So here's the question. Most women love to talk about that. Would somebody with autism want to talk about it? And can they decompress by talking about it? I think, uh, like, if something's bothering you at work a lot or something emotional that you're going through, you usually communicate it with me pretty well, but we kind of have... A different connection. Yeah. I mean, I see that you guys really have a friendship there, which I've been impressed with, to say the least. Yeah, I think uh, I think those safe people are the people that have that full understanding of like that unmasked persona or not persona but you unmasked completely and like knowing that that person is not going to judge you or get offended in any way by anything that you are doing that just because you're world. decompressing that's everything so a lot of boys with autism have that object or they have the clothing or they have an that to them, for example, sometimes a weighted blanket or sometimes tightness, you know, and I think that object tends to objectify something that's more important, whereas I'm hearing you say, yes, my relationships make a difference um, as far as helping to cope and decompress. I mean, I think there's definitely a very much an attachment to objects as well, but... um you can have those relationships on top of it. I mean, I like to stray to video games or um, stuff like that. And Don't you think that's one reason why men and boys are getting diagnosed at a higher rate? Because a lot of the times, they don't, sometimes, they want those relationships, but they're so frightened or don't know how to move forward with them that you can find that more easily. Oh, they are. I mean, more and more people are coming up with it, especially, like, I've, I've been watching all these TikToks, the autistic TikToks, it's called, and, like, all of these people are getting diagnosed up in their, like, early 20s and all that, and we're all going through this, like, healing process of, like, Thank God that dealing with that. They're there that you guys can connect with each other. Mm-hmm. I I feel so much better about that because I think that's going to reduce depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. all of those things. Well, and I think a lot of that uh, side of TikTok is just people normalizing all the weird stuff we do. Like, yeah, it's it's nice to see other people like doing stims and making noises and just 
being relieved and comfortable in their own skin, like, that makes me have more confidence in the fact that I can be like that. And I can also have neurotypical people accept that because they are normalizing it. Which is wonderful. Uh, how about clothing for you? Because I know just having a son and a husband with autism, clothing is huge for them. I mean, I would say more with my husband than with Gabe, but for you, do you have clothing that really... For, dad has compression needs. He needs two or three socks on or jeans. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of jeans. I like wearing a structured pant because okay. I can feel it on my legs. Um, there's a lot of like fabrics that I don't like and will avoid. I won't touch them. Yeah, like, velvet. Velvet is velvet. awful. Anything that kind of feels like felt, awful. <laughs> feel, feel free to say it. My beard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it's halfway in between. Yeah, when it's the stubble. Um, and I also, like, another one, like, if you're wearing, like, short sleeves under long sleeves, like, and you can feel that sleeve underneath, it's <laughs> it's the only thing you can think about. It bothers you so Now, much. you do wear that, Mike. You wear short sleeve under a long sleeve. See, that tells you the difference. ASD is different for every single person and what bothers one person, you know, doesn't bother another. It's interesting to, to be like I said, but I think that's probably one reason why it's probably a challenge for diagnosis across the board, especially high-functioning diagnosis, is because I think they're, everybody's so different that there's not like the set set of here's are the so five things to work through or five things to identify if they have them, they have them, you know I mean, everybody. The five things could be different for every single person. The way I started seeing how how those with high-functioning autism, I saw it with Mike and with Gabe and later with you, you would, you would memorize our patterns of speed and routine. So Gabe, for instance, knew that I had a hard day at work by where I went in the house afterward. And he would try to push me down into my chair and throw a blanket on me because he knew that that equated to me having a better mood. And it feels like it's like studying people. I wonder if you are so quiet when you first meet people, unless you put that social face on, where you're studying in some ways safety, safety of that person, but also behavioral aspects and memorizing them before opening up. Yes, 100%. I mean, I tend to avoid those first interactions until I can kind of like observe. And I almost like you know the person before just so you can easily easily like socialize with them. You know, it's a lot harder to just do it with someone completely random blind like um but if you at least have a couple details of that person or how they communicate with other people it makes it a little bit easier to have a starting point it's phenomenal that you have somebody that can talk so easily with somebody because i found that so important with mike and i Mm -hmm. it and it it does sometimes get exhausting to have to lead all the time or feel like you're leading because everybody in the world tells you it's got to be an equal relationship and it doesn't in some ways. It's like if you're with somebody that has autism, you're actually doing them a favor by bringing that comfort there and helping them the first couple times. Let's turn and talk about 
overstimulation. And I think that's such an important topic to get to. What is, to you, what is overstimulation? How do you cope with it? Um, so for me, um, my overstimulation tends to come from noise, and that's a pretty common thing um, amongst people with autism. So overstimulation comes from just too much going on at once, and that almost like it amplifies itself and it like stresses you out how did you so, grow up in our family we have three dogs three kids when you were living there we were all in 1100 square feet how did you do that uh, <laughs> it was a lot um i think i uh did a lot of like little things to like like stimming and um stuff like that to help me cope with it i think i was as creative with it but like um, you are pretty creative. Yeah. I definitely don't perceive myself that way, so that's really? something that, like, comes... When someone says that to me, I kind of... I'm, oh, she's it's very... It's something creative. that's always confused me, too, because you constantly say, like, I don't see myself as a creative person, but I think you are one of the yeah, most creative Yeah, one of the most creative. And that comes in humor, that comes in, you know, mm -hmm. some of the adventures that you seek out, like... You're the one in the family beyond myself that'll be like, let's go do this. And you're like, whoa, that's okay. <laughs> that's different. Let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. So, yeah. I think um, my perception of myself, it tends to be pretty skewed a lot of the time. Like, right, like right now, my perception of myself is a very logical person, and uh, which I don't think is completely true. But um, I see that side of me right now because it's like the most prominent thing I've been working through, like yeah. logic thing, lo using logic to like get through my day and stuff. So like, yeah. I don't see that other side of me as much. Yeah, I've lost interest in like drawing and all that stuff, and like, it, so that creative side doesn't come out as obviously to me anymore. You've lost mm -hmm. interest in it, or other things are taking priority. Probably other things taking priority. I'm hyper fixated on other things and. Yeah. I'd say you're really logical as well. That's, yeah. I don't know, I really like that about you too because we're able to communicate a lot easier because you're able to talk things out, process things. Would you say you're a logical person? I would, yeah, I think so. That's typically the way that I, it, it makes it easier to make it through. How are you guys such a great fit? I know that's such an odd question, but I mean, only you know the truth to that. I think our humor has yeah, a lot to that's do what with I was it. Say. Um, Everything's a joke. That's funny because our humor, like, <laughs> I mean, no one gets our humor. Yeah, but that's that's great. We turn everything into a joke, yeah. even the most serious of things, and that's kind of just yeah. That's a coping I mean, mechanism even, in itself. Even in like past relationships. No one has really been able to, like, match my sense of humor, but you have in a way that is just insane. She adds to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what blows, that's what I miss a lot when she's not here is the quips and the mm -hmm. different way of looking at the world and, yeah. Like, that's, I think that's why Sydney, people have Sydney withdrawal. <laughs> like, when they don't <laughs> see you for a while, they're like, oh, my God, where is she? I need a different way of thinking about this. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. You could say anything else to a girl that's questioning or a woman that's kind of questioning whether or not they have autism and where to seek help. Like, what, what would you suggest? 
Right now, the best resource is just the internet right now. Okay. Go look up other women with autism and just see where your commonalities are. See what you can connect with. And if you start noticing stuff that you're connecting with, like, look into, like, how these people cope and, um, you know, talk about it with other people. And Yeah. Well, and us on the psychological side will attempt to move forward. I'm hoping this podcast will help people to recognize some of the signs and symptoms. Autism is not a bad word. We've got to get beyond that because, you know, even in my own life, I can pick out individuals with it. And I think, like you said, had we known there would have been a much kind of not easier route, but different route. And I think that would have been beneficial. Thank you so much for doing this. I know it's hard sometimes to talk on a level that's this personal, but we appreciate it. I, I feel like sometimes we have this relationship that's very like we're co- like we're coworkers, <laughs> and yet we're mom and daughter, and it's it works. it's a very introspective relationship. Yeah, I enjoy it because we unearth stuff together. You and- challenge me, and I love that. I love that. It's it's been fun. For sure. All right. Cool. Well, thank you, Sid, for uh, being on the podcast and sharing your insights. And I think we'll probably be back to you again in the future, I would bet, just because there's so much to this conversation and to this, um, to this topic that, you know, an hour on a podcast doesn't really even begin to get uh, past the tip of the iceberg there. So thank, thank you, you for uh, for being here with us and, uh, and for sharing your story. Of course. All right, so welcome back. Uh, you just got to listen to our interview with uh, Sydney, um, our daughter, who is uh, uh, a, a woman, obviously, uh, on, who, the spectrum, on, the, yeah. on the autism spectrum. Um, definitely uh, interesting insights to hear the, the perspective um, from a, a female um, as opposed Absolutely. to... The, the male perspective, which is probably more commonly known, not that it's totally understood, but I think... Yeah, it, it definitely makes me wonder if women aren't going to be more of our link to understanding who, what, when, where, how, and helping us to really... I think I've gotten more explained to me about autism through women. No offense to guys. I mean, I, I just think they have they have an ability to kind of get in there and help us to understand the whole masking concept and when they're looking for words and, but we definitely have to diagnose this better. Oh, definitely. You know, and, you know, and I think, I mean, not to be too stereotypical, but I think just the different typical kind of differences between men and women probably have an impact on how, how we're able to express, you know, the experience with the symptoms and the, and the, the things that go along with being autistic, you know. You know so. I remember when Gabe was young that he had a chart with about 30 different feelings on it. And I remember when he was young, he would point to one of the faces. And I think that was his way of kind of expressing that. Yeah. Yeah. Even seeing him now, you know, 15 years later, you know, uh, you know, it, it, you know, he's, he's changed a lot, you know, and he's grown a lot, but I mean, it's still a challenge for him. I mean, to sometimes express himself in in the same way or in a different way than like what Sid does in terms of, you know, in terms of how they're feeling and what they're thinking and how to get ideas. Sid was definitely more verbal. Oh yeah. But the verbal, I think 
I think the fact that she was verbal probably kept her from getting the correct diagnosis as well as the correct intervention there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that's one of the things we've noticed too, that I think probably the important part about the the diagnosis aspect of it is the intervention piece. You know, yes. I think people that even even if they're not formally diagnosed, getting those interventions. I mean, we saw it with Gabe. I mean, Absolutely. he wasn't diagnosed until a little bit later on, but he was getting some interventions from a very uh, the two teachers uh, the that teachers had him that were, knew that they were knew. very uh, attuned to. They were what they so worried to tell us, and I don't know if I could have handled it at that age, but. One of the things they did with Gabe is they pushed the socialization and how to communication, how to communicate at an early age, and it has made all the difference. Oh, definitely. I mean, so. it's not perfect, yeah. but yeah. he can advocate for himself, and he does introduce himself. You know, whether it's a job interview or in school with different teachers, he'll say, "I'm Gabe, and I have autism." And that's how he advocates for himself. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good thing because a lot of people aren't able to do that. So. Um, so anyway, uh, we, we hope that you enjoyed listening to uh, this interview. Um, Karis, you got any parting words here before we sign off for this episode? I just think it, it's great to keep learning and to keep building on what we know about autism because it is a growing percentage. It, by 2040, it's supposed to be one in seven individuals oh, wow. with autism. Wow. That's crazy. It, yeah, you know, and I think to your point, like all the topics that we've discussed on this podcast so far, and we'll continue to discuss, you know, communication and openness and willingness to talk about it is definitely the definitely the key to spreading that information and helping people just better understand mental health and just differences in people Absolutely. and all those kinds of things. Thank so. you, Mike, for what you do. I'm sure this isn't always the easiest form of communication for you, having high functioning autism either. So. Um, I think people really appreciate. I've heard people say they like our dialogue back and forth, and I'm sure that's probably not easy for you. With no. oh, I that. thought you were referring to the gluten-free pizza and making that <laughs> earlier, but I, I, maybe you were talking about something else. So. Anyway, uh, cool. Thanks, Karis. Um, thank you to Sydney uh, again for taking the time to open up uh, and share with us. Um, thank you to everyone who's uh, listening to the podcast. Uh, we appreciate your listens and. Um, with that, we'll, we'll say goodbye for this episode, but we'll catch you in the next episode. Uh, thanks again for listening.